Hi guys, and welcome to the Muscle Mentors podcast. I am here with my co-host slash business partner slash fellow potato, Luke. Luke, how are you? I'm good. Potato-like. Very potato-like this morning. Um, This will be segment two of the fasted slash time-restricted eating topic. Um, And Luke's going to start to talk through some different elements leading on from last week's podcast before we crack on it is worthwhile noting while i remember that everything we say today or luke says um, is not uh legitimate medical advice and please do not take anything literally Um, always consult your physician before experimenting with anything we discuss on this podcast how have you been luke yeah good good been a busy, busy few weeks planning everything for the seminar, and yeah, it's been good, awesome, good, and um, yeah, it's all good. I think it's also worth noting that if there are any um, blips with the recording today, apologies in advance. Um, we are currently trying to get this sorted, um, but it has that happened last week as well, and it may happen today, but. Hopefully it should be okay. Yeah. But how are you, sir? Everyone needs to know. I'm good, mate. I'm good. It's been a busy busy week last week with shows, another busy weekend this week, but um, everything's, yeah, everyone's doing well. And um, everyone's... I mean, Callum's Callum's clients, for everyone that doesn't know, seem to be absolutely destroying their shows as of late. Um, Yeah. Very impressive. Um, no, everyone's done really well. It was the UK and the FBA show um, this past weekend where Jay took uh, took second in the men's physique tour. Um, the winner being the most insane young guy um, I think I've ever seen, um, who I'm confident will do some serious damage. Uh, basically, the, the finals of that, if you win the final, you go to Vegas uh, for like a world final. Um, but that, that, like, honestly, that guy was unreal. Um, mm. I think he was early twenties, uh, but like structurally, like he had the most incredible structure. And if he put tissue on that over the next couple of years, like that will be that will be a pro that will be a pro physique without a doubt. Yeah, IFBB pro as well, wasn't it? Insane, insane, insane. But that was cool to see. Very cool to see. Incredible. Um, right, what are we starting with today then, in terms of? Uh, content well basically i don't think we need to go over much of what we spoke about last time it was just be the, the aim for today is to kind of cover uh, the three main areas that intermittent fasting is you know hypothesized to influence our metabolisms um those areas being like the kind of modifiable lifestyle behaviors and factors that are involved with you know, implementing fasting, circadian biology, and then a little bit on the gut microbiome. Um, okay. Yeah. Sounds sweet. Yeah. But I reckon, um, you know, it's worth saying, like last time, we kind of used the terms time-restricted feeding slash eating and intermittent fasting interchangeably because they're pretty much the same thing. Um, and... Um, and then for those that haven't listened to the last episode on kind of what intermittent fasting is, like how, how you're able to actually get into a fasted state and, um, you know, the benefits of doing that and some, you know, some of the things to look out for when fasting, like what to eat, what not to eat or what to drink and what not to drink in a sense. Um, have a listen to that last one because that will kind of set you up to, to kind of, hit the ground running with us here um but yeah the, the so i mean with regards to those three areas like the the so modifiable lifestyle factors circadian biology the gut microbiome when these guys get dysregulated like disrupted to some degree they tend to lead to the most complications with respect to our health and our like predisposition to developing certain like 
metabolic conditions and diseases like we're talking obesity, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease, certain immune or autoimmune conditions, um, metabolic syndrome, which is kind of like the precursor to a lot of that. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's worth noting as well that a lot of the stuff I said this in the last episode, like a lot of the benefits of, you know, associated with time restricted feeding and intermittent fasting can be and have been reproduced in research using just simple methods of restricting calories. Um, so, you know, is, is it necessary to implement the whole intermittent fasting thing to a very extreme degree and like regimented degree if you're looking for a lot of this stuff no it, de- it depends entirely on your goals and how how kind of on it you want to be um and whether it fits with your lifestyle you get a lot of people that fasting is just like the best thing for that for their busy lives and or just how they prefer to eat and then you get some people that enjoy food a bit too much and and but not in the sense of they overconsume; they just like to have food throughout the day and you know intermittent fasting won't be the best thing for them um so yeah i mean when we get onto the circadian biology side of things you'll probably see that everyone can benefit from implementing some element of time restricted feeding um but it's not like you know we don't have to be as extreme as doing like a 16 hour fasting window or like not non-eating window um you, you know, you can take that. Uh, I mean, most people will normally end up about what well, I say that like the way people live their lives nowadays, you get some really messed up eating practices where people are eating like every, you know, they're only having eight, eight hours in a 24 hour period where they're not eating, which is probably a bit um, abnormal in the, in the, in, in the grand scheme of how the human body's evolved. But the, you know, most people coming in with like 12 hours of, of eating and 12 hours of, of not eating that's that's pretty fine um and um oh yeah we'll get to that stuff in a bit um so in regards to lifestyle factors that's probably the best place to start um because that's like the most commonly referred to area when it comes to the impact that time restricted eating and, and intermittent fasting can have on the human body um and this is where you know people refer a lot to fasting as a tool for caloric restriction. Um, but we know that there's a lot more to it than that, um, which we spoke about on the last episode, um, but we'll cover again here a bit. Um, so when people, you know, if you're someone who's been told that fasting is only good for restricting calories, restricting calories is itself a very good way of stimulating a lot of these kind of health promoting beneficial pathways um in the body but you you don't um you know fasting's a tool to do that you don't need to um yeah there's many ways to do it so there's more than one way to skin a cat um but it's like there's there's a lot more to the the puzzle basically so people that have been just told that that's all fasting is good for then like broaden your horizons a little bit or tell the person who told you that to do that um because there's a lot of evidence for some cool stuff that fasting does and you just got to dig into it um so we i mean well i suppose before we go on you're right that will make sense Carl. it did yeah it did Cool. Cal's like the, the guy that can tell me if I'm just going off on one and talking shit. Yeah, I, I'm the one in uh, Luke's life that has to rein him in when he goes in <laughs> full Einstein mode. Yeah, to be fair, I'm feeling quite tired this morning. Um, one, <laughs> one of the biggest benefits of the last one was people were saying, obviously, the, the stuff you were throwing across was, um, from a fasting perspective, was interpretable in regards to, like, it was easy to take on board. Whereas a lot of the stuff you'd normally get from microbiome fasting is like pretty heavy in terms of mm. literature or just generally starting to take any value from it. So mm. it's, just, it's just hitting those wavelengths again today. Mm. Uh, it, I mean, 
it will be a little more sciencey today, but we'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, I, I always find that like the, the simpler you can make a topic, the better, and it, it you get a lot of people that you know trying to translate these huge topics across podcasts or seminars, whatever it is, and, and they're kind of you, you know trying to sound as as clever as possible and using as big a words as possible and it doesn't always denote the biggest understanding of the subject when someone has to do that if you can simplify stuff it tends to be better um everyone um but um anyway so with regards to the lifestyle factors like most studies on time restricted feeding like i mean there's quite a few meta-analyses out there and you look at like on average about 70 80 sometimes up to 90 percent um you know, denote that the the practice of of time restricted eating, intermittent fasting, leads to a a marked and sustained decrease in weight loss. And we saw that, um, you know, in that case study we mentioned last week with the longest documented fast, where the guy went from what was it like four hundred and um, was it four hundred and fifty six pounds down to one hundred and eighty pounds, and then five years later he was still one hundred and ninety. 296 pounds something like that um and like when you consider what marks a successful diet it's the ability to sustain that weight loss so that is a pretty you know successful approach with that individual obviously would different differ with others um but most of these meta-analyses that have found this marked and sustained decrease in weight loss have been done with also human participants so there's a lot of you know in the realms of circadian biology the realms of um the gut microbiome some of the stuff with the with well most of the stuff in the area of fasting to some degree is is animal-based studies which is in terms of using rats and stuff which is problematic because obviously it makes generalizing quite hard um like extrapolating those results and applying it to humans but it it allows us to gauge some pretty cool stuff that goes on um and like it doesn't you know a lot of people have a, a view that oh if a study's done with with mice it must be um you know it's crap and it doesn't apply to humans at all and that's not true because as you know you look at for people that follow the work of dr sachin panda who's um like the sulk institute of uh, i don't know if it's of circadian biology but he's one of the lead researchers in circadian biology and he's he's done some cool stuff but he you know he somewhat he addressed that query um, and he was, you know, saying that there's been cases where, you know, people implement intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, and they all, you know, across the board tend to note a reduction in things like um, acid reflux, so GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, um, which, you know, uh, acid, you know, typically suggested to be high levels of stomach acid, although we know now it's like low levels of stomach acid, plug for the digestion episodes we did if you haven't really haven't listened to those um but the um what they found is like fasting can um reduce that occurrence and then you know there's certain things where they, it, it makes it very difficult to you know go into a human subject and figure out why but they found in mice that fasting basically activates certain um pathways that um basically reduce pro- the protein pump um, activation in, in the stomach lining. So it, it, that's the mechanism that they found that produce, you know, reduces this occurrence of this, this uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease. And they wouldn't have been able to find that. Well they, well, they found that. I think they would have been able to find it in humans, but they found it in mice. And then they were able to say, you know, that's, that's the mechanism. So there are places where it is pretty useful. Um, the with so back to the whole calorie restriction thing like it is a case that the main reason you're going to see a marked and sustained weight loss by implementing fasting is you know because you're going to see a reduction in general energy intake um across the day um and that you know is going to be pretty easy sustained if you're an individual who can you know, apply the intermittent fasting lifestyle to your own lifestyle with relative ease. Like it, 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 it's not a case that you're having to 
make any big sacrifices because a lot of these studies have been done where they don't change how the the subjects are actually like what they're eating they're just changing how how and when they're eating so um the the the, the actual foods they're eating tend to be relatively the same in these studies so that's the you know the method is that people aren't making these drastic changes to their dietary habits they're just kind of restricting the amount of time in each day that they're allowed to eat and that, and that's leading to reduction in energy so it makes it quite an easy thing to sustain um the, the what's funny though is that in the literature they've done studies where they've they've noticed like people implement the intermittent fasting for you know maybe a day and it actually leads to a reduction in energy consumption over the next few days where they're not being restricted in, in um to a short there's also carryover in the sense of it seems to be um some benefit to just improving our eating practices and like preventing the overconsumption of calories just from using fasting you know, you know maybe a couple of times a week um my hypothesis for that is basically that a lot of it will be psychological um but in the sense of if you tell someone or someone knows that by implementing time-restricted feeding that, that they're aiming to both maintain a healthy lifestyle and lose weight though there'll be some element of positive behavioral change that will ensue and, and it's you know so it's, it's not often the case that individuals will use time-restricted feeding as a tool for over consuming calories in the following days but like we spoke about on the last episode that can be the case um especially when you you know you, you have people that are using intermittent fasting and time restricted eating as a as a vehicle for kind of disordered eating um for people that have had a history with that um or or some element of like binging and purging you know the, the punishment so if someone has a you know a day where they overconsume, they might um follow up with some pretty extreme fasting days which again might not be necessary but it kind of contributes to some pretty uh, a pretty negative relationship with food um but yeah it, it it kind of goes back to what we mentioned in the last episode as well with that guy that did the really really long fast um 382 day fast you know that was medically supervised and that's where you know if you have people that have had a history of um uh distorted eating or anything like that or even if they've just never done fasting before it's potentially a wise thing to um do it under medical supervision initially or under the supervision of someone that knows how to do it or how, how to implement it um yeah all good yeah that's nice it's probably worth saying it is very common for for that kind of vicious cycle of somebody slipping up on whether it's you know the macros or calories for the day or whether they were they were easing off a meal plan because i've seen this with clients lots of times um and they'll follow that up by you know i only ate one meal the next day or i did a 24-hour fast the next day but you know, as, as from a sustainability perspective and a perspective of managing their psyche like it's a it's a it's a bad it's a bad habit to get into that so mm-hmm. it's trying to make sure that you know fasting isn't becoming a vice to them you know, manage these poor relationships with foods as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm, I think it, it's like, you know, like we, again, we spoke about on last episode, you know, people kind of ask what they should do following a fast and before a fast. And it's just like, you just eat normally, you know? So if, if someone has a, and, and eating normally or, you know, healthily, you know, there's a pretty, um, like subjective terms in a way but if you uh you know if you if you're finding that you're kind of changing your eating habits pretty drastically while you in, implement this sort of practice then you're probably doing it wrong and if yeah. if, if that change is something that is like a, a big you know you have to force it and it's not comfortable change then again you're probably doing it wrong yeah. um anyway so like on the energy expenditure side of things um there's some people that claim that you know fasting upregulates metabolism, and, and there has been stuff that shows that. Um, where there, oh, there was a study by someone I've forgotten his name. Um, maybe I've written it in here somewhere. Um, 
Yeah, I think I have written it in here. I think I mentioned it on the last uh, last thing that there was a re- resting, you know, fasting was shown to increase resting energy expenditure in VO2 over a four-day fast, uh, and both increased pretty significantly alongside a weight drop. So the, you know, some people claim that that is the case. Um, there's not a lot of other evidence for, you know, in relation to energy expenditure in, in human participants at least. Um, but there's like, you know, there's a lot, well, there's a lot of studies that have shown like no statistical difference in energy expenditure between groups who implemented time restricted feeding and groups that didn't. Um, so we're kind of, there's still a lot up in the air about that at the moment. Um, but in, in certain animal th- studies, animal models, where they've uh, shown a pretty marked increase in energy expenditure when implementing time restriction feeding. But again, that comes back to the the whole, is it becomes problematic to generalise those results to humans. Um, so it's probably not the best thing to do. Um, I, th- I think the biggest area, and this is where a lot of these areas, over, these three subjects overlap, um, but we, we've got to think modifiable lifestyle behaviors like uh, and how it relates to circadian biology sleep is probably the biggest one and it gets a lot of there's been quite a lot on sleep with regards to fasting um but again i think i said this last time when it comes to the if, if someone was to take anything away from this i'd say the biggest thing you should do is just think about timing your food intake to the daylight hours and when it you know once it's night time, just not eating unless, you know, unless you're someone that absolutely has to, but even then it's usually a case that you've just got to be a little more organized. But, um, but it's been observed like a lot of times in the, in the literature that when you get individuals that consume the, you know, largest portion of their calories in the nighttime hours, they're the guys that tend to suffer from poor sleep quality and duration, uh, duration, and uh, they tend to be the guys that are at a higher risk of developing cancer, insulin resistance, obesity, um, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So a lot of the, you know, really bad um, non-communicable diseases that are kind of so prevalent in society these days. Um, and, you know, the the, the main reason... Um, that this tends to be the case is because of the you know the lateness of this eating is is causing some element of circadian desynchronization and disruption which is again very very common these days um especially with how how we're living our lives at the moment with regards to you know artificial light everywhere um food so readily available um the 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 impact that this can all have on how our body wants to function is in terms of timing things to the daylight hours. That's, that's a, that's, you know, it's a, it has pretty powerful ramifications. Um, and, um, when it comes to the whole circadian synchronization and desynchronization debate, th- th- these are perhaps the most important areas when it comes to, um, how our how our eating habits can influence our health um and this is probably i mean it's an area that tends to have the most research but people never speak of it which is quite interesting um you know but there's so much stuff out there where they've there's been no changes to what people are eating and they've simply just changed when they're eating it and they've seen like incredibly powerful changes in in health markers and uh weight weight loss and and things like that so we know that there's a huge um a huge benefit to being able to kind of synchronize everything as it's it's, you know quote unquote meant to be synchronized um and it's um it's pretty powerful um yeah it's probably do you reckon i yeah i probably need to define circadian circadian define everything exactly i was about to go in um but the um so basically circadian rhythms and, and circadian biology you, essentially the case that pretty much every organism has you know has evolved to synchronize 
their behaviors and and we're talking about physical activity eating sleeping to certain times of the day or night um and this has been you know achieved by the development of these you know many varying endogenous circadian clocks um and in humans you basically have this one there's a, what's known as like the master clock which is located in the uh suprachiasmatic nuclei of the hypothalamus <laughs> which is uh, the basically the hypothalamus is an area in your brain and there's there's a basically a group of um group of cells in um suprachiasmatic nuclei um and these guys are the guys that respond to pretty much all our external stimuli and time a lot of the body's uh physiological and like biological rhythms to those um and this is where you know what's what's sitting at the top of the hpa axis the hpg axis the hbt axis the hypothalamus like it basically regulates pretty much all of that and a lot of it has to do with these guys that are kind of timing the the release of hormones and and uh peptides and all this stuff to um to these external external stimuli that we're experiencing the most potent of which are the changes in light and dark so there's so much that is is been found that has you know with regards to hormone levels um synthesis of certain nutrients and and all the stuff that is in you know timed with light and dark um and um and then we also look at the fact that there are also, you know, a huge number of genes located throughout the entirety of the body's tissues that um, are also circadian coded. So there, and, and like the liver has a huge number of these, and, and um, coincidentally seems to be entrained mostly by our feeding time. So this is where we spoke about last time with coffee, um, like people saying, "Can you have coffee during a fast?" Coffee, you can have during a fast in the sense of it won't disrupt you know it won't technically knock you out of a fasted state it will increase autophagy which is one of the think reasons you potentially want to fast and some of the protein you know due to some of the polyphenols in there you know, interacting with proteins in the human body but the what happens when you consume coffee is apparently it does um, reset these peripheral clocks in the liver um, so technically if you had coffee during a fasted state or a time, you know a period where you weren't eating you would um you would be resetting these clocks in your liver which would be in training those clocks to then expect food at those times um so and that's basically how you want to think about it. like these clocks kind of you want to think they almost start ticking when you're not eating and every time you eat you reset them back to zero um and so you get people that really, really struggle to fast are the guys that eat very frequently because their body isn't trained to expect food very, very frequently. And that then leads to this like coordinated increase in ghrelin, which will increase hunger at these times. And that's, again, one of the things we see where you, you they've measured ghrelin levels of these individuals that have implemented fasting and they the, the ghrelin levels spike at the times that these people would normally be eating and as the longer they fast that kind of subsides but there's that common misconception that when people implement fasting the ghrelin levels kind of exponentially rise and people just get hungry and hungrier but they've actually shown that it, it, that's all timed to our um our, gen, our feeding practices um and that is generally the case with every hormone in the body um, pretty much every cell in the body has some element of circadian rhythm um, and um, and that again I mean it's, it's like with the gut microbiome they're, they're really really barely scratched the surface with um, with this, this circadian biology and figuring out all the stuff so you know in another five ten years the, the, this is going to be blown wide open um, and it always you know it comes down to the debate of you know what's the biggest thing we can do to influence our health and you have the gut you know the gut health crew and then you have these you know circadian synchronization circadian rhythm crew and you have the kind of keto crew and all this stuff and you know why at some point it's going to become clear which is the, the one we want to focus on um 
And in terms of the bulk of research available at the moment, circadian biology is probably slightly further along in the in the race than some of the others. So there's some pretty pretty amazing things that are going on. Um, and like on the circadian clock thing again, like those peripheral clocks. So you, we know that there are these you know peripheral circadian clocks located within fat tissue, within muscle tissue. And these are the guys that tend to be timing, you know, or regulating our, our metabolic pathways and also respond to feeding signals. So again, it comes back to, we know that food is has a huge impact on how our body's ticking along, um, and like how it's timing all this, these processes. Um, you know, if, so if we were to consume a meal at a time that was not considered normal, by our circadian rhythms, for instance, like during the night hours. So those are on a night shift or people that kind of just have you know, those sorts of lifestyles where they prefer to eat quite late in the night or they get up excessively early where they're technically still in the night, you know, in, in the nocturnal hours and they eat. These these peripheral clocks will, te- you know, likely to be reset, um, which is going to lead to an, an, a pretty strong element of circadian misalignment when you do that for long enough so maybe once or twice you know a year you're gonna you're not gonna have a lot but they haven't there's not a lot um well there's it doesn't it's been shown it doesn't take much to disrupt them so people going oh, i only do it once a week like that is technically enough and it's like you know the people that you know they nail their diet and they nail their lifestyle all the way from sunday to you know to saturday and then on the saturday night they they uh go out get absolute shit face with their mates and eat loads of food in the middle of the night um it it's been shown to take like potentially three to four days for everything to get back realigned because you've essentially simulated jet lag um by giving your body all those signals at a time where it didn't it wasn't used to getting them um so it's um yeah so you know people that kind of have the view that they do it once a week where they go out and 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 they're kind of a bit what's the word i'm looking for um a bit lax with their um with how they're living their lives with regards to how they're timing food and 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 all that stuff then that once a week is still doing you quite a lot of harm um um and i like what you know people that travel a lot are going to have this issue. So, you know, pe- you know, people that are consuming foods during periods of traveling across time zones. So when you're flying by plane, you know, humans don't have wings. So we weren't ever meant to cross distances like this. Well, I say we weren't ever meant to, we, we've never evolved to cross distances like this. Um, and so well, in, that, in that short period of time, so you get, um, you know, it might change, like give it a few hundred years and we'll be fine. <laughs> uh, the, uh, but the, at the moment, the, the changing, the, you know, the, the rapid change in our light and dark cycles that we get um, from jumping across a time zone like that is just the change in light and dark cycles is enough to disrupt our, you know, the suprachiasmatic nuclei in the hypothalamus. But then you also throw on top of that the, feeding and people drinking alcohol and, and watching films on a plane and all this stuff. And, and you get these peripheral clocks getting disrupted too, which is going to even, even, you know, further perpetuate the issues that are kind of associated with that. Um, and, you know, you've got to ask yourself, it, it doesn't make sense to even to have a big meal or something like that on a plane when, and when it's a time you'd normally be sleeping. Um, so it's, you know, it's not really any surprise that we get these issues. Um, and that's where, when it comes to flying across time zones and stuff like that, people want to be probably implementing fasting. Um, you know, it's not a time where you want to be eating. If it's a short flight, you're probably all right. And if you're not jumping out, you know, across the night, you know, like an entire light and dark cycle, um, you probably you're probably okay to have something. Um, but the, it's just, you know, if you're on a big flight, you, you change it, you know, there's a big time zone change. That's not the time to go in on loads of food. Um, even though people tend to get in holiday mode or something like that, you know, you, you probably have a far better holiday if you don't, because you won't spend the first few days feeling like hammered shit. <laughs> 
But um, I mean, from a gut perspective, they found in mice that I don't, I, we mentioned this on a past podcast. I think the one with Jake Carter. Um, you know, if you simulate jet lag in mice, which they've done, um, the the mouse, well, the mice they did that in became immediately dysbiotic, which means they they found they basically experienced a negative shift in their in the composition and the balance of their gut microbiome or gut microbiota. And the result was that these mice became insulin resistant immediately. And then what they did was they then transferred that, uh, the gut microbiota of the dysbiotic mice into sterile mice. So mice that didn't have any, that had their, um, their microbiomes basically destroyed with antibiotics. And the, uh, the previously sterile mice that weren't insulin resistant took on the same insulin resistant physiology after receiving the, the fecal transplant of the, of the jet lagged mice. Um, so, you know, that just shows how powerful it can be when you get someone who's um, desynchronized their circadian biology. And that's where, um, you know, people can be living with this stuff all the time. Um, and it's not until they start addressing when they're eating, when they're doing exercise, you know, and, and, you know, traveling schedules and stuff like that, they can get health back on track. Um, so if you're someone who wants to get as jacked as you possibly can and you're staying up really, really late, or you're one of those guys that thinks it's a smart idea to set an alarm, wake up in the middle of the night and pound back a meal and then go back to bed, you're not doing yourself any favors. Um, which I mean, we, th- there must be a lot of people that have done that. I think I've done that before, back in the day, when you see people like JP and, and all oh. that, they're doing it. And, it, and you know, it's, it's logically like, oh, yeah, it's just another protein feeding. And you're like, yeah, but the damage you're doing to your physiology in terms of you're then going to downregulate your body's ability to take in nutrients the following day. Um, you're going to, you know, probably massively increase inflammatory cytokines and molecules in the body because of what you're doing and all this stuff so it's in terms of limiting how long you can spend in the growing phase you've just done that and then also increasing the chance of you know if you're in a surplus and trying to gain muscle you're increasing the chance of all that food going into creating an inflamed fat tissue is probably a lot higher um so it's you know it's not not the smart practice but people do it um anyway it's crazy a lot um, of do that as well. I know it's really common, and you know, people. I've I've got like, I think there was definitely at least two clients in the last three weeks that I started training, and um, and on their forms they they'd written that they would do that. It was like um, middle of the night, they would wake up and have a pre-made protein shake, and then go back to bed, and it was like, you know. No wonder their sleep also sucked. <laughs> um, the um, yeah, I mean, the, the it kind of comes back to what we mentioned with the shift work as well. You know, there's been a lot of studies on shift workers, so people that are working into the nighttime hours, um, and nearly all of these studies. I would actually go on a limb and say like probably all of them I don't have, have shown that many serious health concerns uh, arise for people that do that. So people that are consuming the bulk of their caloric intake during the nighttime hours um, basically experience such a profound disruption to their circadian rhythm um, that it, you know, that they get that. I think there's a huge, well, I, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but the, the increased chance of developing things like cancer um, diabetes insulin resistance is is astounding um, and that's where they've actually linked um, shift work that disrupts the articate natural circadian rhythms uh, to cancer and it's actually classified as a class 2 carcinogen um, which is pretty bad um, so um, yeah I mean the another area to consider would be probably the role of insulin um like insulin sensitivity and when this is highest and when this um is at its lowest because this can kind of 
quite nicely demonstrate some of these you know circadian fluctuations in our hormonal um, profiles and stuff but insulin sensitivity is at its highest in the early early hours of the day and um and it decreases as we transition into night and there's a lot of stuff out there that where people have said that insulin sensitivity is highest at night because you've spent the whole day moving around and you have that extra um for translocation that's taking place by simply using your muscles throughout the day um and then and when you wake up because the you know cortisol is high and, and everything like that um our ability to process carbohydrate and put that in muscle tissue for instance um is, is lower that's that's pretty much disproven at this point like we know that insulin sensitivity is at its highest in the early hours of the day in the earliest hours of the day um and it, as we get through to the nighttime hours it naturally will decrease um and um you know and that that but the, that's all been studied without factoring in additional activity so if someone was to you know try to offset that they would probably okay, say oh, okay if i was going to time my if i'm looking for optimal uptake and i want to time my um my activity to to assist that i'm probably going to do my training in the evening because that's going to that will give you the um increased glute four translocation that you'd get from contracting muscle tissue but without that it's still the case that your ability to handle carbohydrates is pretty good in the morning and when we when we consider why that can be the case we you want to look at things like well the fact that overnight you'd have depleted a lot of liver glycogen anyway um so your body's kind of ready to top that back up um you've also potentially entered into some element of a mild ketogenic fasting state um provided you're able to do that um and so your sensitivity to insulin in that respect is going to be slightly higher um but when we look at the manner in which insulin is secreted we we can see that you know postprandial glucose so glucose after eating and insulin response after eating um has been shown um to basically increase as we go into the day so the 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 later in the day the higher the reading in postprandial glucose and insulin we get um, and that's that's been shown many many times um which um when we factor in things like cardiovascular health over time the increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease type 2 diabetes because of you know the concurrent increase in hba1c levels which is hemoglobin a1c like um glycated hemoglobin um which is basically where your hemoglobin, your red blood cells kind of bind up a lot of the glucose in your blood and, and get pretty sticky. Um, and that's um, when we get high levels of glucose circulating, circulating in the blood, that tends to be what happens. Um, but um, one of the other things we see is when we sleep, providing our sleep is, you know, effectively, you know, high quality and, and timed well timed effectively um we'll see increase in growth hormone um and um you know it, when growth hormones high insulin obviously can't be high because insulin will blunt growth hormones release but one of the benefits of growth well one of the some of the benefits of of growth hormone with respect to fat tissue uh muscle tissue and liver um liver function you're looking at an increase in um fat fat oxidation so lipolic well fat oxidation i don't think lipolysis and fat oxidation are the same thing um but an increase in lipolysis in, in fat tissue you're going to there's going to be a reduction in glucose uptake in fat tissue um a reduction in fat cell or fat tissue genesis or lipogenesis um in muscle tissue um you're looking at a reduction in glucose uptake again um which is you know interesting um and then you're also going to see an increase in lipoprotein lipase activity which is one of the guys that's going to help in kind of liberating fat um there and then an increase in beta oxidation which is the process of which you're actually going to use fat for for fuel um, within the mitochondria and then in the liver you're going to see an increase in 
very low density lipoprotein secretion uh, um, so that's like the where people talk about LDL and HDL you have VLDL there's a couple of others as well and that basically just serves to function as a transporter for fat and cholesterol to other areas of the body um, so the you know what, what we're seeing basically growth hormone is is kind of priming our body to start using fat as a fuel more um, and actually reducing the the amount of glucose we're using um, but you know if we have in terms of if someone has you know prolonged and elevated levels of insulin this is where if someone has you know is concerned about trying to maintain some level of decent body composition and stuff like that if someone has you know these midnight feedings where they're waking up and smashing a protein shake or you know they're just eating very frequently and late into the day um where they're and as a result they're having high levels of circulating insulin they're not going to get these benefits of growth hormone which are generally actually pretty healthy um obviously for the bodybuilders out there that just supplement with exogenous growth hormone you, you're covered <laughs> but the um yeah but the uh there's a, you know the, one of the reasons we we want to time our feedings early in the day is so we can kind of maximize our you know natural growth hormone secretion and therefore gain those benefits with regards to kind of optimizing our physiology in a sense um yeah i mean that there's there's a lot on the circadian biology side of things i, I think <laughs> I'm tempted to save the rest for the seminar. Um, I think if we delve any deeper, then we're going to be crossing crossing yeah. territories. So let's leave it at that. Yeah. That was sweet. Yeah. I think the last thing to say, though, is basically that, you know, again, you know, when you're considering the impact of circadian biology, you know, it's, it's, it's a case of you, you, you know, it's a far better practice to restrict our eating to diurnal hours, so the daylight hours, because um, we are diurnal creatures. Um, we are not nocturnal. So the, uh, you know, and when we just do that alone, you'll synchronize a lot of things with regards to food ingestion um, and optimal hormone response. Um, and, um, you know, you just make sure your body's able to run kind of how it normally wants to run and how it's evolved to run. So if you take anything away from this, you don't, you know, don't worry about giving yourself a, a time restricted feeding window. Just if it's dark, I wouldn't eat. And if it's light, get away food um, in, a, in, a, in a smart way. Um, that's probably the best thing you can do. And then you'll probably find that you fall into a routine just doing that. Um, but that's also probably the way you want to start doing this. So if someone has never implemented time-restricted eating, fasting, whatever, it can be quite daunting to suddenly give yourself, uh, you know, an eight-hour window to get everything in. And it can be quite stressful if someone, you know, if you then you, you eat a meal slightly later or you have to start eating earlier. Whereas if you just say, sweet, it's daylight hours, I, I you know, I can eat and my body's going to process this pretty well. And, I'm, you know, if I'm not exercising, I probably want to, have some of my carbohydrate intake during the you know first portion of the day and then as it gets later into the night i probably don't want to go ham on carbs um unless i'm training you know so it's, you know there's loads of practical takeaways you can take from that um but yeah i thought th we'll wrap circadian biology there and then like last thing we'll do is we'll touch on some element of the gut microbiome and the gastrointestinal tract which there honestly hasn't been a lot on and this is where you know, I said there's those camps with regards to what is the, the biggest player in human health. And at the moment, with regards to well, obviously fasting, like the gut microbiome is probably going to be the guy that comes out on top, I reckon. Um, but in the realm of fasting, time restricted eating, there's not been a lot out there on it because it's such a difficult thing to to study with respect to humans and animals. Um, and, and then factor on top of that kind of, implementing all these time restricted eating and stuff um yeah um anyway so we'll keep this one quick but the um 
it's you know regarding the gastrointestinal tract you've, you've got to consider that if this is compromised to any significant degree all the downstream processes regarding the what we mentioned last uh, last episode so the absorptive and the post-absorptive states are negatively affected um, and we need those to be working pretty damn well um, which if we want to maximize our chance of getting any benefit out of getting into a fasted state and getting into a fasted state quicker um, but we we also can observe things like gastric blood flow um, gastric emptying these are greater during the daytime than at night so again it comes down to our bodies more attuned to dealing with food in the daylight hours um, when we think like gastric blood flow that's regulated by our you know parasympathetic nervous system and you know the vagus nerve and all that stuff when we you know if, if we're timing stuff to the daylight hours we're going to gain a benefit from the fact that those systems have you know, evolved to work in those times um, but um you know the the differences are you know with regards to those gastric blood flow and gastric emptying the differences are significant enough for us to be able to say that without considering any external or internal stresses we are predisposed to deal with far greater amounts of food during the daylight hours. So that's not, not factoring activity. That's not factoring in, um, you know, the amount of food we're eating, all this stuff. So we're just, you know, we're able to eat more during the daylight hours and you start pushing into the night and you're not able to do that. Um, and, um, you know, the, the incredibly, well, another incredibly impressive impact that, time-restrictive eating can have on the gut has been um, shown in the, the, the ability to lead to a reduction in intestinal permeability. So those people out there will know this is leaky gut. So intestinal hyperpermeability is when the junctions of the small intestine, um, like the tight junctions holding the cells of the small intestine together get slightly, you know, spaced further apart than they should be um and that's usually as a result of information and that can basically allow slightly greater sized food particles through into the into the body that the body isn't used to which can trigger some pretty potent um or, you know immune responses um and um there's uh, what they found with is that by implementing time restricted eating intermittent fasting there's been a number of studies that have um found like a, a reduction in systemic information off the back of a reduction in intestinal permeability um and there's basically a specific mechanism um induced via fasting that activates this pathway um in the gut brain axis um and this this but this pathway leads to an expression of this this short neuropeptide f or snpf which um which is basically found, and this is a quote from a study, it's found to promote energy homeostasis via gut enterocyte SNPF receptors, which appear to maintain gut epithelial integrity, um, loss of CRTC SNPF signaling, disrupted epithelial type junctions, allowing resident gut flora to promote chronic increases in antimicrobial peptide gene expression that compromised energy balance. So, the takeaway here is that if we're able to, or if we're unable to spend adequate amounts of time in a fasted state in line with our natural circadian rhythms, the potential for disrupting the integrity of our intestinal lining will increase. And we, we see that a lot, um, you know, like disruptions to brain chemistry, even, you know, physical, if someone gets hit in the head or if someone gets, um, uh, you know, if there's trauma and stuff that's causing disruptions in the hypothalamus itself, there's been, they've been found you know, correlated with increased prevalence of intestinal permeability, leaky gut. So it's pretty powerful. The link is big. And that's, um, you know, it comes back to the whole gut brain axis thing. Um, but then they found, you know, that, that pathway sounds awesome. So everyone's going to be like, Oh my God, I just need to fast. And, and, um, I'll, um, you know, I'll sort out all my gut issues. Um, and it may work, but then they've also found, that if you you know overexpression of this pathway 
basically dampened uh, the gut immune response and enhanced starvation resistance, um, which you know may or may not be a bad thing, but it makes it difficult to say whether we ought to um, kind of over, over, overdo it on the fasting side of things. Um, and um, and that starvation resistance is basically where you start your body would think about kind of lowering its metabolic rate and you'd stop seeing positive metabolic adaptations. Um, but the um, you know it is definitely needed. There's some pretty cool further study needed in that area. Um, but it you know that's that's just one of the areas um, with regards to fasting. But again, there isn't a lot else on there. Um, but you know. What, as of this moment, with regards to the, the gut microbes themselves, um, we know that they demonstrate their own circadian rhythms. Um, and some of you know, these are pretty prominent, but we don't know or, or really understand the extent of these rhythms and, uh, and how they're going to influence human health. But we know that there's like certain bacteria that are more active during certain points of the lunar cycle. Um, we also know that the microbial populations in humans differ quite significantly across a single 24-hour period, um, and that's going to come into you know things like the fact that we're swallowing, we're you know defecating, we're drinking, we're eating food, um, intestinal permeability itself. You know things can get in and out, um, but we can uh, safely say that. With respect to the gut microbiome, time restricted eating and intermittent fasting may influence microbial diversity for the better or for the worse. At the moment, we don't know, um, but um, but we can say that they're not causing any negative, um, like microbial metabolic adaptations that is going to significantly impact human health. So um, I suppose we can say it's you know. It's, it may influence microbial diversity for the better, but we, we know it's not for the worse. Um, but that again, you know, there's a, that we'll wrap that one there because that's probably enough, but it comes down to if you're someone who's been saying how fasting can massively impact the gut microbiome um, and how awesome it is for, you know, improving the gut health and all this stuff. It, it has been, but I think more of that is noted, you know, more of that is kind of indirectly, attained through the circadian realignment than it is from anything at the moment that we know that's happening with regards to the gut microbiome itself so if someone is giving you loads of loads of uh, kind of viewing loads of facts about what the gut does to the microbiome i'd fact check them for the time being because even the top researchers in the world aren't, aren't very clear um but give it give it five to ten years and hopefully they will be um, but yeah, I think that's probably enough. Um, that's good. That's good. I'll give you a taste. And what we'll do, like in the actual seminar itself, so for those that are coming and for those that are still interested, we're going to be going deep, deeper into um, some of those areas. Yeah. But yeah, I hope you all enjoyed. Uh, it was quite science heavy, but. No, it wasn't too bad that. It was, um, it was interpretable. That's good. Scientific takeaways, people. Yeah. Practical takeaways. Most of them are the same. Just eating daylight. Yeah. Boom. Right. Sweet. Thank you for that, Luke. My pleasure. We will. Um, is there going to be a part three of this or not? I guess there's not, is there? No, we might. We might see if we can get someone on. I mean, like, Sachin Panda would be quite a cool person to get on. We can't. He, he does quite a few podcasts. So. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Uh, I think the next guest interview will potentially be that then. Uh, and I've also got. Um, I thought I think the next one you've got lined up, haven't you? Yeah. You might, the part three of this fasting one might come a bit later. Um, but um, we need to be careful. We're not just stepping on the boundaries of obviously what's going on with the um, seminar. Exactly. Um, I've got uh, Dr. Dean Saint Mart coming on, who um, some of you may be familiar with, um, coming from an FM background. Um, kind of a PhD in synthetic organic chemistry, um, generally just a, a, a brain whiz when it comes to all things chemistry. Um, chemistry. 
Dr. Dean actually is the, the main educator and content writer for uh, Trained by JP's website as well. And he will be coming on uh, discussing the basics and the mechanisms behind which um, performance enhancing drugs work uh, and giving some practical takeaways for um, what would be perceived as the elephant in the room within the fitness industry at the moment. Um, and we're going to start to break that down into take-home points that you can essentially learn what these things are how can they can be applied uh, and essentially break down that barrier um, so people can view them as um, something that's not got as much stigma necessarily as potentially they have, they have now. Um, so yeah. that'd be very, very interesting indeed. Yeah. Educational purposes only as well, people. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely say that on for that podcast. Fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, that'll be, that, I'm very excited for that. So uh, I really like Dr. Dean and he is a genius. So um, yeah. Cool. Awesome. That would be one where I just kind of sit in the wings and um, and kind of just say random things every now and then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. We'll wrap that up now. Thank you for listening. Um, we are currently on 29,000 views, so we've nearly hit the 30,000 mark. Um, for everyone asking, um, that wouldn't even apply because you wouldn't be listening, but people were asking on Instagram wh whether you can get this on Android. Um, and yes, you can get it on SoundCloud. So, yeah, that's it. Mm. Um, yeah, thanks, guys. And we will uh, speak to you soon. See ya.